So we've been practicing here together for three days now. And it's kind of touching or impactful for me at least to notice the effect of the weather today. And perhaps some for some of you also the uh the strength of the, the wind and the rain at times quite uh sort of like feeling the that power of nature and something beautiful and awesome in that and equally the the kind of unpredictability of it and uh having gone out for a walk at one point when it was looking like it was clearing and uh you know sort of uh yes you can tell where that's going can't you um and then within a, a few moments suddenly the rain coming so strong like wow and it's it's kind of like, oh yeah that's a little bit like what it's can be we experience inside sometimes isn't it you know we think oh things are calming down and then oh it's another storm and we think oh the storm has set in it's going to be like that oh actually no it's cleared up again interesting now it's windy what i'd like to reflect on this evening is one of the uh, central themes of the buddha's teaching and um, one of the themes that the buddha himself invited us to reflect on and this is the experience and the reality of impermanence and change and uh i like to entitle this uh what it means to live in rental accommodation and this is a fundamental aspect of the the dharma teachings of the buddha to recognize to see to contemplate the significance of this that we can observe very directly the fact that things change. The Buddha spoke about it and he used the term at one time of it, is that this is the elephant's footprint in his teachings and that's kind of curious sort of image or metaphor but but he said the elephant's footprint is the footprint that encompasses all other footprints. It's the biggest one, I guess. And the teaching of change encompasses all the teaching and all the wisdom in the world of things the truth that all that arises is subject to passing this dominates the world of things and this human existence we could perhaps understand it as not so different than living in rental accommodation when i was uh, somewhat younger and uh, returning from living overseas with Catherine my wife we'd been uh, working in a retreat center in America we came back to England and we didn't really have any resources or um sort of financial sort of uh security anyway and some kind people offered us a place to stay it was very lovely to uh, have accommodation provided and we were in engaged very much in the uh, supporting and serving of of this organization and this place guy house and um it was a lovely place to live and we were there for just about a year and these people weren't asking us to pay to be there we just had to keep an eye on the old man who lived nearby to make sure he was okay he didn't want anyone to keep an eye on him but his family did so there we were um and then after about a year they very kindly and sweetly asked us if we would leave because they wanted the the apartment for something else. It was like, oh, well, well, of course they've offered it to us. They can take it away. 
And we moved from one house to another, fr- staying with friends, sort of getting a short-term place here and there, and didn't quite settle. And then some good friends of ours that we knew from India bought a home, um, and they, they, they wanted someone to share it with them. And it was a large house and a lovely ground, so they said, why don't you come and live with us? And, Great, yeah, we'd love to. And, uh, you know, we were living with these, these friends, fellow Dharma practitioners, for about a year and a half. And then one day at one of our regular meetings, they said to us, a little sort of embarrassed, that they, they'd like us to move out. And, you know, we didn't take it personally, or not too personally, but it's like, oh, yeah, of course. You know, it's their home. They can do that. It's not our home. We can't. We couldn't ask them to move out. And there's something touching about that, and that anyone who's lived in a situation like that knows the vulnerability and security of that circumstance. And this human existence is not so different. This body, heart and mind, we could say this place we live most immediately, this is also temporary accommodation. We don't own it. And it actually turns out that landlord's kind of unpredictable. We could get evicted at any time. We could get given our notice. We might not get notice. We might just be gone. And it's important for us to contemplate and reflect this, not because it's somehow news to any of you that this is so, because of course we know this, but we need to let this understanding penetrate deeply into our heart, into our mind, into our life, and into how we live this life that we have, but do not have forever. And the reflection that's invited and suggested that goes along with this, that the Buddha suggested as one of the daily things to contemplate, to bring to mind every day. Everything that is mine, beloved and dear to me, that I will be parted from. And just to contemplate this. Oh, everything that is mine, beloved and dear to me, that I will be parted from. And we, we kind of know at some level, of course, yes, I will die. People I care about and love will die. And there's something appropriate about acknowledging that can be a sadness, a grief, a sorrow. And in when there is such loss, of course, but even in the contemplation of it, oh, oh, okay. It's not inappropriate to have a response to that. But what's interesting if we reflect on it is that <coughs> we often don't really take on the fact and the truth and the implication of this temporiness of our experience and our very existence, we don't necessarily take it on very close to us unless it seems like it's quite immediate, like it, we can see it happening to us in some way or form. <coughs> and it, it very much, this reflection, this contemplation very much informed the Buddha's own journey and his own search and his life, where in the, the time before he went out on his spiritual journey, before he left his home, and his, it seems relatively comfortable, and in fact one would say in terms of the, the times, quite privileged life from what we understand, he, he encountered the fact of impermanence, seeing that human beings, and therefore himself, did not live forever. And this reflection, this contemplation, led him to ask himself the question, why should I, who am subject to birth and to death 
who am impermanent. Why should I also spend my life pursuing other things which are subject to birth and death, which are impermanent? I'm paraphrasing here. Does that make sense? To spend my time pursuing things which will not last is essentially the question he's asking. And it's a question perhaps for ourselves too. And as I said, you know, change is all around. We see it in so many ways. The weather is you know, a wonderful teacher with regard to that, particularly in this country where it's remarkably unreliable. And I don't say that as a criticism, it's just an observation. When you live in other countries, as I spent the first sort of half of my life um, growing up in New Zealand, one wonders why you know, English people have this reputation for talking about the weather. And you come and live in, in this country and you're always, why? Oh, that's why. And so we see, you know, sometimes it's this, sometimes it's that. We know it. And we know that of so many things of our life. None of us have got this far in our lives, even if we're still sort of in the early decades, shall we say, without seeing that things change, <coughs> without seeing that. But the question is, do we really live and relate and act accordingly? So once I was coming to teach a retreat here for a week in summer, and um, it was following on from a period of really hot weather and um, it had been really sunny and warm in June for quite some time and I was coming to teach a retreat and I can remember agonising over what to bring with me because I wasn't sure I had enough clothes to have clean sort of and half decent clothes for a whole week of warm weather. I was like, how was I going to manage it? Because turning up to teach a retreat, I need to dress at least it seems somewhat respectably. That's the feeling anyway. Um, and, you know, probably most of you will recognize that from whatever you do in your sort of formal roles. Um, and I, I, I remember the, the real sort of angst about, oh, gosh, how am I going to make it? Um, and I, and I came, came to Guy House with my suitcase and, you know, the sort of the, the clothes that I'd found that seemed the right things to bring. And a couple of days after I got here, the weather changed and it turned cold and wet. And I went back and looked in my suitcase and there wasn't a single jumper or coat. You know, I'd been worrying about do I have enough lightweight shirts for this hot weather? And somehow, despite being someone who, you know, in a way, in, in those tidy professional working clothes, talks about impermanence, somehow I'd completely assumed that for the whole week it was going to be hot and sunny. And there's a kind of a, a moment of shock when you realise in such things. And I'm sure we've had such experience, not, you know, I've had similar experiences. It's like, oh, wow, I really believed the way it is now is going to continue. And so what we are asked to look at and check out in the light of this contemplation is how real is it for me? this understanding. Like, you know, I could go into any sort of school and ask a child, do things always stay the same? And they'll tell you, no, no, they change. They know that. We know that. But that's not enough. And we can see how so often we operate under a misperception, a delusion, we could say, that what is, in fact, impermanent and changing, we imagine and believe it to be permanent and fixed and act in relationship to it as if that is so. 
And we do this all the time. Does anyone recognize the experience from meditation where one is sitting and it's, ah, oh, you know, it's been sort of uncomfortable and boring and sort of irritating and pointless and all of the different things that go on for a while, days at times it seems, and then it somehow gets quiet and somehow my body starts to feel comfortable or possibly even a little pleasurable and the mind goes, ah, yes, hmm, that's right, that's they were talking about yeah okay and and then there's this, this sort of this this kind of just settling in and getting comfortable like almost in an armchair so, ah yes mm. ah good okay so this is what the practice is about yeah okay I think I'm getting here yeah and <coughs> we, we notice the train of thought oh, this is good you know this is a few days that's good but maybe I'll do a longer maybe a month maybe maybe I should sit for several months or, or may, maybe I should Go to Asia and take the robes and, you know, shave my head. And, and we just have this image of sitting somewhere in a cave, you know, with all, all our devotees around the entrance and sort of contemplating our sort of our, our, our spiritual attainment. And then at some moment we realize, oh, gosh, this is a fantasy. We've somehow projected this pleasant meditative experience into the future as if it will go forever. And we think, oh, no. A few moments calm and I blew it. I lost it. I'm completely hopeless. I can't meditate. I might as well give it up. There's no point. I'm not even going to wait to the end of the sitting. I'm out of here going home right now. And again, we project that moment of unconsciousness as if that's the totality of my meditation experience and the complete, you know, its maximum potential is going to be just this. And then we feel the move or the urge as if to act on that. <coughs> and it's so interesting, isn't it? So much of how we're relating to what's happening is based on an idea or an assumption that somehow it's going to stay this way. Not that we think that, but we act as if that is so. So many times when we encounter something difficult in meditation... And it can be really difficult sometimes, we know that. The sense is that we struggle with it. But the struggle isn't actually with the experience, often, in truth. It's with the idea that what will happen if this will continue, or if this doesn't change, or if it stays like this forever. Because the curious thing is that if it's happening and we're still here, it's actually, we're surviving it already. It's the idea that it's going to keep going like this that becomes unbearable for us. And so it's really interesting to notice in our mind when we start to use the language of always or never. It's always going to be like this. It's never going to change. Because it's kind of imagining a continuity and a permanence and experience which is not possible, and which our, which our experience doesn't actually bear out. I mean, has anyone even had a single meditation period that was kind of the same from beginning to end? I mean, you can put your hand up. I'm not going to. You know, it's a rare thing. It might happen, because that would be a change too, wouldn't it? But it's not what we experience. And yet, when we land in a place where it's not easy, that sense of, it's gonna, I've got to do something to change this. Actually, 
You know, what's that saying? I, I, I don't know where it comes from. I've heard it attributed to um, Scotland, but it probably could be equally attributed to, 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 to England, not wanting to labour the weather metaphor. But, you know, doesn't it go something like, if you don't like the weather around here, just wait a minute? And it's sort of like with our experience. Oh, if this is difficult, can I pause and see what happens? Not to say, of course, there aren't some difficult experiences that do continue, that sustain in time. But often if we look at them closely and examine them carefully, we see that even within that, the intensity shifts and the way it manifests and the way it shows up changes. And so another way that we can also notice that assumption of continuity. And, you know, I said we've been practicing here for three days. Now, when we arrive, it's like, oh, what on earth have I got myself into? You know, this is crazy. What, what am I doing? We might have such thoughts. It's not unusual. And then after three days, it's kind of like, oh, oh this, is, this is what happens. This is how it goes. We kind of settle in and we almost start to imagine it's going to be like this forever. We're going to be on retreat for, you know, however long. In fact, it's not forever. It's really just a few days and I don't mean by that to make you anxious it's just oh yeah we're just here for a little while I mean this whole life in some ways is just for a little while but so easily we act as if it's forever there's a uh, reflection in the Zen tradition that goes the days are relentlessly passing how well am I spending my time you know how fully am I prioritizing what's most important to me what I really care about what I really value and of course here this is this is one of the invitations of, of, of this retreat and of our practice it's like oh, the cultivation of wholesome qualities of heart and mind deepening in our capacity for kindness and friendliness and loving care deepening in our capacity to unhook the mind from its reactive and entangled patterns growing and developing those capacities these are truly worthwhile and wholesome things and so we can see that there's a way in which when we remember impermanence when we reflect on that it's not forever we we kind of feel ourselves kind of more able to prioritize what's important, what's truly important. The uh, French philosopher, Gaillou, he once said, if we know but we do not act accordingly, then we know imperfectly. Uh, a very interesting reflection that sense of when we say I know things change but we see ourselves acting in ways that suggest we think things will continue or be permanent what it's saying is we don't really know it. we haven't really got it deeply and the, the process of insight the development of this practice is really the movement and the transformative process of correcting our misunderstandings and misperceptions and in this it's a movement from blindness and confusion to wisdom and clarity so we talk about insight meditation we talk about the cultivation of wisdom and this is a wisdom path because it's from seeing clearly our experience and fully taking in the implications of it that actually things begin to shift
the conceptual knowledge of change doesn't actually move us very far at all. And so it's, it's useful to kind of consider also and reflect on how it is this misperception of permanence arises for us, how we tend to assume things will stay the same so easily, why that is. And it's very much to do with the way we don't tend to examine our experience very carefully. The, the image I find that's useful to illustrate this is if we're driving in a car. And if you're driving in a car on a long straight road, if you look out the window at the front, what you'll see is in the horizon, there's very little changing. Does that make sense? You can follow that image? And if you were to look out the back window, of course, don't do this while you're driving, but if you look out the back window for a while, there won't be much changing at all either. Whereas if you look out the side window, what do you see? If you look out the side window as you're driving down the road, things are going past so quickly it's a blur, you can barely even register what's there. If you're travelling at, you know, 40, 50, 60 or miles an hour, it doesn't have to be so fast, and it's a blur. The way our mind tends to work for us is we tend to project our attention into the future and into the past. When we project into the future or the past, we're dealing with fragments of information and images and pictures we construct from them. Anything we think about the past is based on images and extracts from our future. Sorry, anything we think about the future is based on images from the past. What we remember from the past is not the past. It's some little pieces of it we've remembered. To remember the past would take as long as it took to have the past. We can't do it. It's not possible. So what we have is this condensed little package of pieces that are pointers for us. But they're fixed. They don't change. Once we've remembered this little picture, it's not a nuanced thing. It's like it was that. And our thinking in the future tends to be projections of that in front of us a version or variation, perhaps an improvement or possibly a regression from that image, but also kind of fixed. And so far as we live in the past and in the future, we live with a sense of things that are solid and fixed and unchanging. In this practice, as we learn to pay attention to our immediate experience, as we learn to unhook our attention from the fixation with the future and with the past, and, you know, mostly we're looking into the past to figure out what went well so that we can try and replicate it in the future. And we're looking in the past to figure out what went badly so we can avoid it in the future. And a certain amount of that is useful, of course. We, that's learning. There's something intelligent and skillful in that. But the complete entanglement in that world of past and future means we don't actually connect with or pay attention to the immediacy of where we are. And as we develop the capacity to do that through the meditative practice, through paying attention to our experience, we start to see how quickly, how rapidly, how profoundly and how unstoppably our experience is changing. And the sense of solidity, of fixity, of predictability, of permanence that we attribute to it turns out to be an illusion and we can start to see that if we see how our experience is happening moment by moment and this is one of the really potent ways in which attending to the present moment starts to transform us because we become we, we get in contact with the experiential knowing of impermanence not the conceptual idea but the knowing the felt sense 
experience of, wow, things are changing. And the solidity of our experience, this mind, this body. If we look at it carefully, what do we find? Sights and sounds, smells and tastes, touches, thoughts, images. And they're flickering, they're flowing, they're changing, they're rippling, they're morphing from one into another. Sometimes they might seem to follow cyclic repetitive patterns, but they're still fluid in that way. And where are they? Where are all the experiences you've had in your life up till now? Where are all the thoughts you've had that seemed so important at the time? They're just gone. Where are all the smells you've smelled? You can remember a few of them maybe. All the sounds, all the tastes, all the delicious things or unpleasant things we've eaten. They're just gone. They're not somewhere waiting, packed away in an attic. You know, we can go and look, up, look them up later. The memories are just images and pictures of them. And the future? It's not there. There's no sounds or smells or tastes or thoughts or images from the future that are here. Our thoughts about the future are happening right now. They're part of what's right now. And they dissolve again and again and again. And if we watch them, if we start to be able to see them from this place of just grounding into the present moment, into just being here, letting the body be a ground for that. One of the really um, one of the reasons why we use the body in this regard is the body's changing more slowly than the mind. The process of shifting experience is more discernible in the body and there's more possibility to actually connect with it and not just be carried by the stream and the flow. And so we come into this and we see, oh, how do I define myself by this experience? Can I define myself by this experience? Does it make sense to define myself by this experience? There's nothing fixed that I can point to, that I can say, this stays. This is always here. This was here yesterday. This will be here tomorrow. Of course, there might be certain patternings that keep repeating. In the same way that water flowing through a river, going over the rapids, forms the same wave at that point, or the same sort of whirlpool at that point. But we see that the river is fluid. And if we try and grab hold of it, we can't. If we try and take hold of something in my experience and say, it's me, we'll find, just like water, if we grab it, it eludes us. And this, in our initial encounter with the truth of this, with the experiential reality of this not just the idea this is kind of unsettling for us it's kind of it's not that you're going to somehow disappear in the sort of a, a puff of buddhist sort of logic or something what's here is here but the way we've conceived and imagined it if we don't understand how fluid it is is not representative or accurate in relationship to the direct experience that we can know. And so, 
because it can be unsettling, because it's not easy for us, often there's a way in which we we recoil from it, we pull back from it, we resist it, and we look for something permanent, we look for something fixed, we look for something that will give me security in the midst of a world that is fluid, that is changing, that is impermanent, and that ultimately we will not continue to participate in. At some point that will come to an end. And so the seeking for security and for reliability and for permanence shows itself in various patterns of control, of rigidity, of kind of tightening around things that we notice as a contraction, as a tightness. It's almost like the fluid living shape of our body tightens and hardens as if to try and become something solid. And we notice that, we feel that. It's not very comfortable at all. We can invest in possessions. We can invest in situations or circumstances. Our focus towards the future is so much. If we examine it carefully, we see oh, it's somehow trying to create a fixed and permanent and reliable condition in which things will be okay for me or optimal for me. It's not to say there isn't a real value in reflecting on and working towards growth, development, bringing forth what is wholesome and beautiful in our hearts and in the world, in a trajectory that includes the future. But if we see we're doing it somehow to hold ourselves back from feeling the, the tenuousness of our existence, if we're looking for security and safety and or protection from change and impermanence through our activity, we'll be disappointed. And if we misunderstand that failure as our personal failure and just try harder, we find ourselves overwhelmed and exhausted in the process. If we reflect on and say, oh, actually, maybe this existence isn't here for me to make something fixed and solid and safe out of. It's a bit like children building sandcastles on the beach. Or adults for that matter if one should enjoy such things. You know where you build sandcastles don't you? If you think about it a little bit. You don't build them above the high tide zone because the sand is dry you can't do anything with it. You don't build them below the low tide zone because there's water on that all the time you can't do a thing. You build it between the high tide and the low tide zone. It's obvious when you think about it. Wet sand, you can make things out of it. Interesting. But inevitably, of course, the tide rolls in. And you can see sometimes children, and maybe adults too, um, so happy with their beautiful creations in the sand, and some will be distraught and distressed when the tide rolls in and destroys the sandcastle. And others will... Just enjoy the spectacle or possibly join in um, with the destruction. <laughs> and in a way, it's like our life is the tidal zone here. Between the high tide and the low tide where you can actually form things. But you can only do so in a wise relationship to them if you understand they're not forever. Helen Keller, who lived an amazing life despite facing the challenges of being uh, deaf and blind. 
She once observed, she said, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, and nor do the children of humankind experience it as a whole. In the long run, in the long run, avoiding danger is no safer than outright exposure. Life is either a glorious adventure or it is nothing. Remarkable words. And if we see this existence as a glorious adventure, if we, if we take on the implication of impermanence, of unpredictability, of uncertainty, not as some sort of unfair punishment being done to us, but actually as a, oh, that's also what gives life its sense of possibility. I mean, impermanence isn't all bad. Things would be kind of crowded if everybody who'd ever sat in this room was still here. Just, you know, as a simple example. The fact that people come and then leave is good in all sorts of ways. And we, we know, of course, in fact, we get quite enthusiastic about the truth of impermanence when difficult experiences arise. Sometimes we'll be, you know, sort of, as if one is a sort of established in sort of Buddhist teaching and practice, one says, oh, impermanence, great, you know, waiting for impermanence here. Come on, impermanence, you know. Um, and we see that, of course, that's not really the wisdom of it either. But the fact that we can reflect, oh, okay, this is hard, but it's not forever. Okay, I can probably manage that. It's the bit that says I can't do it forever that often kind of tightens, contracts and creates much more suffering when we're facing something difficult. And that contemplating of impermanence when we encounter something difficult. It's like so we can attend to the painful or the scary or the unwelcome element of it or we can attend to its impermanent nature. Oh, okay, this too. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. And of course, impermanence is, is also the basis of, of how we experience what is beautiful. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of going into a restaurant or something and seeing some flowers on the table and looking at them going, are they real? And they look real. They're so well done. And then you get closer and you're as, well, they really look real, but they're not real because actually there's no bit of them that's dying. inevitably something that's alive and that's beautiful it has its beauty because it's not like that forever that's part of what touches our heart it's not just the shape and the color and the form it's the fact that it's evanescent it's transparent it's like a plastic flower is life it might be a great work of art but it's not beautiful in the sense of real beauty at least that's not how I experience it and it's like as if you know one was standing watching a sunset. And it's like the subtle oranges and yellows or reds and maybe moving towards sort of purples. And But if we just, it can be fascinating. It's like, wow, so beautiful. And yet if it just stayed the same, if it stayed bright red, actually it wouldn't be that long before we go, okay. Yeah, you know, I've seen it. It's bright red. Okay. What's for dinner? It's the fact that it's changing and slowly dissolving, that we can't take hold of it. How many times have I tried to get a photograph? And it just isn't, it doesn't do it. Of course, it could be beautiful in one sense, 
But what's really beautiful and captivating is the way that it slowly, imperceptibly and yet perceptibly shifting. And, you know, in that way we too. In that way we too, as human beings. This is our journey. This is our trajectory. When my wife Catherine and I got married, um, we opened the ceremony um, with Catherine singing a, 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 a sort of a, a song that she'd derived from an Aztec prayer. That the, the basic refrain was, um, only for a short time, life has loaned us to each other. And we really loved that because it gave us a sense of something really precious. But our family, and particularly her family, found it really strange. <laughs> It's like, just a moment, you're, you're making this permanent commitment. How can you be saying in just a short time, you know? It, it doesn't make sense. And yet, you know, I'm not sure we'd have done it if we did it today. But, um, but that sense of, oh, but feeling the preciousness of this opportunity, of this coming together with someone in that sense, actually makes it alive. And uh, in, um, there's a... There's a um, there's a little plaque at the uh, the monastery in, uh, in in Chithurst where I, I sometimes have been fortunate to spend some time um, in the Buddhist monastery Chittavaveka in uh, in East Sussex and um, or is it West Sussex anyway it's, it's somewhere over there um, and it's it's a little plaque with a quote I think it's probably from a haiku and it has um, it it says Cherry blossoms cover the hillsides for but a few days. Any longer, and we would not treasure them so. And then it's got a name. It says Little Sam and a single date. And it always touches me, even just to remember it. And I've talked about this many times that sense of the preciousness of a life that it seems was just for one day is not less because it was just for one day, but more so. That sense of recognizing the impermanence of life is where we find its preciousness. If we were all here forever, how would we know this was so precious? So in that sense, it's not something to be afraid of but to allow ourselves to be touched by. To see this is how life is. And it also gives us a, a framework for relating to our life. So much of what we encounter, so much of the struggle and suffering is the, the sense that somehow I'm supposed to improve this or fix this thing or get it perfect. You know, this thing, this body, this mind, this heart. You know, we come in with so much pressure, so many agendas. It was really striking to me when we moved in with our friends and that story I told you earlier at the beginning. How we moved into this, what seemed to Catherine and myself like a lovely house. We thought, oh, what a lovely house. And our friends moved in. It's quite a reasonable response they had was, oh, this is nice. Let's move that wall. We'd like to, you know, we'll, let's change this over here. We'll put one of these over there. When we have a sense of ownership, we kind of want to think, we, we think it's up to me to do what I want with it. But when we understand something is just rented, we're just borrowing it for a little while, we're much more likely to be content with it just as it is. It's more like, oh yeah, huh, I've been given this for a little while. Huh. Okay, 
It's not a perfect one, but I was given it. So hey, I can't complain. So we can kind of find this relationship to our experience of a kind of a softening of, oh, this, these thoughts, these feelings, these experiences, this body, it's, it's kind of borrowed. And there's a kind of a lightness and a softness and a, a kind of a natural quality of appreciation that flows from that sense. And it also invites a way for us to hold it more lightly. To recognize the, the transience of our experience. And one of the, um, the, the, the stanzas within the Diamond Sutra, which is a, a body of teaching from the later northern Buddhist schools, um, it, it speaks of this. It says, In this way you should look upon this fleeting world. A drop of dew a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a mirage, and a dream. And that kind of that cascade of images, of evanescence, of dissolving, of it sort of brings that sense, of, oh, in this way we should look upon this experience. Because to see that is to give ourselves a lightness in relationship to experience that otherwise tends to feel heavy, tends to weigh upon us. And so the wisdom of impermanence, of change, informs how we relate to experience. Experience keeps coming and keeps coming. It's unstoppable until it stops. But until then, it just keeps coming. That's for sure. And what it says to us is with that that comes to us that we might find positive, agreeable, delightful, desirable, receive it, but don't hold on to it. Because it will move, it will change in its own time according to its own laws. For sure that will happen. It also says with regard to that which is difficult or challenging, let it be. It won't be forever. It's not up to you to make it go away. That isn't to say, again, that we can't at times cultivate, which is wholesome and beautiful. That it's not appropriate to work with the conditions of our world to try and transform that which is harmful or that which we see as not serving the well-being of life. But that at the inner level of just allowing what comes to come, receiving it and releasing it. And this practice of being present that allows us to do that. To release the habitual and un often unconscious mechanisms that resist or that take hold of experience. And it's, it's not suggesting we don't become intimate with it, but actually quite the opposite. This is what allows us to be intimate with our life. And um, this is articulated for me very beautifully by... Um, by Blake in one of his poems, and I'll, I'll just slightly adjust the pronoun to make it more, uh, I would say, universal. They who bind themselves to a joy do the winged life destroy. They who kiss the joy as it flies live on in eternity sunrise. Really beautiful it's for, for me that that... that Articulating in a few words what I spent hours going on about. Um, but uh, there we are. 
they who bind themselves to the, a joy. So that which is beautiful or delightful that we love, when we take hold of it, it's like, does the winged life destroy? There's a lightness, there's a fluidity to the movement, that sense of winged or winged life. That sort of, it's in flight, it's flowing, it's moving. And when you grab it, you destroy that, you take that away from it. But those, they who kiss the joy as it flies, so to make full and intimate contact with the experience, not holding back from it because I'm not going to get attached to it, but actually to be intimate, to kiss the joy as it flies. Live on in eternity sunrise. So Blake is pointing towards the dawn of the timeless. Eternity sunrise. Something opens up for us that we could not have imagined or conceived when we actually start to embody this relationship to experience in which we allow it to flow and yet we stay intimately in touch with it. There's a way in which as we let go of our resistance to or our holding on to experience and it's the wisdom of impermanence that informs us and supports us to do that. It's through seeing at a moment by moment level the fact that in fact we cannot hold on and we cannot resist. Our resistance doesn't stop it happening. Our holding on doesn't keep hold of what it is we try to grasp. It simply creates suffering in the same way that when rope is pulled through our hands and we hold on to it, we get rope burn. And actually, there's a freedom in just letting go. and just oh, I can't hold that. And actually, there's a release from an immense amount of pain when we find ourselves able. And it's not so much a conscious, intentional choice. It's what happens as the wisdom and the seeing of impermanence becomes more deeply imbued and embedded into our, into our very experience and our, the place in which and from which we are seeing and responding to life. To not seek permanent fulfillment or satisfaction from changing experience. This is one of the Buddha's primary teachings. And equally not to imagine that we somehow in changing and changeable experience are presented with any permanent obstacle to that deeper happiness and satisfaction. Experience in itself neither gives us nor obstructs it. Its very fluid nature prevents it from being able to do either of those things. And as we settle, as we drop more deeply into our experience, as we're able to be more fully present, the simple openness itself starts to show more and more of what is here. The Buddha said, there is that which is unborn, unmade, unbecome, and undying. 
And because there is that which is unborn, unmade, unbecome, undying, there is deliverance. There is liberation in relationship to that which is born, which is made, which is become, which is dying. Not somehow away from it or apart from it. When I was in my early years of practice, I had the good fortune to uh, spend some time in a monastery in Budgaya in, uh, in northern India, in the, the small village that's grown up around um, the place where the Buddha awakened all those uh, years, two and a half to over two and a half thousand years ago. And <coughs> I'd been at this monastery the year before and really enjoyed my time there. I'd come back and was spending another period of time practicing. And one of the things that I'd so enjoyed the previous time was the puppies. Monasteries are kind of like, um, they're like sanctuaries actually within the often quite harsh conditions of a very, in, in that part of India certainly it's a very poor state and a poor region within a poor state in Bihar, in northern India. And there's lawlessness in the areas and, um, and yet the monasteries provide a place where stray animals and you get chickens and puppies and the odd goat and cats and um, it's a retirement plan for the old people who don't have any family they come and end up somehow being looked after there it's very sweet and I was there on this in this period of retreat and practicing and you know having been there the year before and come back and just so happy to be there and these puppies just so touched my heart so lovely they you know so so amazingly full of life they, their lives were not easy i'm sure but they would come you know running up if you'd sit down and put your plate down to um you know just to help you out in case you'd accidentally taken too much food <laughs> or, 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 or you know or, or I would remember just doing really slow walking meditation to come rump smack into your foot just to make sure you're mindful and on balance you know and just and just chase it and full of joy and fun and at some point it was several days in or it might have been 10 days into this particular retreat and I suddenly realized that I thought they were the same puppies as last year And it was like this thunderclap in my mind. I've imagined they're the same puppies. And of course, they're not. We know that. You, you think about it. It's obvious. But something in me had imagined and believed them to be so for all that time. And loved them as the same ones I'd loved last year. And something in me got very clearly. Aha. Uh -huh. The puppies keep changing. Of course, those puppies have grown up. These are different ones. The puppies keep changing. But puppy nature is unchanging. What it is that's expressing itself here hasn't changed at all. The way, the form and the shape in which it manifests has. And so in this practice we have the invitation to, to settle so deeply into simply being right here. Receiving this offering of fluid experience. Developing and growing the capacity to receive it, 
to meet it, to be open, to not take hold of nor resist and to see what we might discover if we drop so deeply into this experience that we no longer hold ourselves apart from it. To realize this changing mind, body, heart and this world in fact do not define who and what we are. We are called to enter our experience and this moment unconditionally and to allow the very weightiness of this deepening presence to draw us below the surface of appearance into a more immediate and real encounter with this life. And I'd like to finish with a, a quote from one of my teachers, Ajahn Suchito, who's an English Buddhist monk who I first met at that monastery I was speaking about in Budgaya now um, some almost 30 years ago. And he said in a talk he gave once, he had like to quote, he said, there is no real learning on the intellectual level. There is only a kind of learning that we do when we have the humility to recognize that really the learning part is when we go to the edge of where we know and where we control. And the nobility of our life, the nobility of our purpose and the aspiration of our life says, keep going. Past the place, past the area where you can't control it anymore and trust. For me, this is the heart of devotion, of faith, of surrender. Not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is. To live in accordance with truth. To honor truth and to trust the truth of our life as it is. What lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of the deathless, the joy of the boundless, the mysterious vastness of life. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together. So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we see deeply into the changing nature of things. Come to be at ease in the fluidity of life. And realize the Dharma, the truth which is unchanging. 
for our own well-being and liberation, for the welfare and liberation of all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.